Amen, church family. I love that song. If you have your Bibles, um, open up to Acts chapter 6, where we're going to continue where we left off from last week, beginning in verse 8. Um, I love that House Fire song uh, just because it's a reminder to me every time I, I hear it uh, and sing it that the gospel is about God inviting me to be a part of his kingdom, not me inviting him to be a part of mine. And it's a song that helps orient our hearts around the fact that we're going to build our life around the gospel and not try to shape the gospel for our own benefit, even though we, we certainly get benefits. Um, if you find your place in Acts 6, I'm going to do something uh, in the beginning. This may be the most controversial thing I've ever done since I've been here. Uh, it is going to be deeply divisive to this church body, but I need to know where everyone stands on this, all right? This is of utmost importance, all right? Now, there are two schools of thought growing up as a child. Everybody needs heroes. Everybody needs people to look up to, all right? But here's what I need to know from you this morning. If you're online, I can see your hand through the camera so you can participate as well. But I need to know this morning, if you were to pick a childhood hero and you only had two options, your choice was either A, Superman, or B, Batman, who would it be? So let's have first um, all the Superman people identify themselves in the room. Raise your hand. Be proud. I'm a Superman person. Uh, my, my kids at home, they're not raising their hands right now, and I know that. Uh, if you're a Batman person, raise your hand. All right. Shame on every one of you, okay? Um, you're going to be church disciplined later. Uh, this is not a part of Travis culture. We are not for that. Listen, Batman is a loser, okay? Uh, in every which way. Every time I ask kids, they always pick Batman. My, my two boys pick Batman pretty regularly. Uh, my nephews pick Batman. I ask this question, and they go, why, why is Batman so important? Well, he has cool toys, right? That's it. All he's got is cool toys. That's it. He's really a loser in, in life in, in the broader scheme of things. I'm a Superman person for a lot of reasons, theologically and because Jesus was a Superman person, all right? It is, it is undisputed that this was the case. You know, all of us have heroes growing up. We all need people to look up to. Mine happened to be Superman. For a lot of kids today, it's Batman, and they're all about Batman. But we need people to look up to. We need people that imitate certain things, godly values, virtuous values. There are times in Scripture that, that God gives us in his word. He gives us an example, oftentimes, of people of the faith because he wants us to, to learn and to glean things from them. But, but he also, in some ways, wants us to imitate the principles that we see their life being, being mirrored after. Now, ultimately, our standard is Jesus, but every once in a while, we get men and women in the Bible that seem to in, imitate Jesus better than, than we do. And in comes the story in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. In comes Stephen, one of my favorite characters in all the New Testament, but we only see him for about three chapters, and then he's gone. Yet, he has a legacy that lives beyond just the three chapters. We were introduced to Stephen last week when we saw that the apostles appointed some men to wait the tables of, of, of a group of, of Hellenist Jews. Now, if you remember from last week, these were the Greek-speaking Jewish individuals that complained to the apostles that they, their widows in particular were, were not being cared for to the same degree that the uh, Hebrew or the, uh, the Hebrew-speaking Jews were. And so they allowed their complaint to go to the apostles and said, listen, we need y'all to remedy this and we need you to fix this. And so they appoint some men, which we believe is the first instance of deacons in the New Testament. Stephen happened to be a part of that group. And so Stephen begins his service in a posture, in a place of waiting on tables, doing menial things that would seem to be insignificant. 
But yet, in those ordinary, insignificant moments is where the Lord was forging Stephen's character to get him ready for us to see what he ultimately is going to do in these two and a half or three chapters. Now, we're not going to be able to go by all of this verse by verse, but I want you to begin in Acts chapter 6, and we're going to pick up in verse 8, where the text reads as follows. He says, And Stephen, being full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs amongst the people. Now, when we look at Stephen's life just from the very beginning, the first thing that we sort of gather from this, based on this description of grace and power and wonders and signs amongst the people, is that Stephen was a man who knew what it meant to be with Jesus. He was a man who walked with Jesus. He ministered out of the overflow of his relationship with Christ. He preached and he taught out of the overflow of his relationship with Christ. He served people out of his relationship with Jesus, seeking to make much of Christ, not to make much of Stephen. But I want you to notice in verse 8, we don't get very far in our text before we notice two descriptors where he says that Stephen was full of grace and he was full of power. Now, just real quickly, when, when the Bible talks about a man or a woman being full of power, they're referring to the fact that this man or this woman is walking according to the scriptures, that they know and understand the word of God, and that their power comes from the authority that's given within the scriptures. And the more they know the scriptures and the more they study them and seek to yield their life after those, the more power and the more influence for the kingdom of God that they get. But notice where he says also that Stephen was a man that was full of grace. Now, we understand the word grace in the New Testament as being someone who, who has received what the Bible uh, uh, would classify or just sort of uh, describe it as, a, as unmerited favor. So when I say that I'm a recipient of grace, it means I have received something from God and I have done nothing to earn it. I didn't pray a prayer to earn it. I didn't do a good work to earn it. I wasn't born into it. It wasn't anything to do with my, my money or lack of money, my family, uh, where I come from. It's just simply unmerited. It's undeserving. Because if it's deserving in any way, then it ceases to be the unmerited thing, which is what we call grace. But prior to the New Testament forming, the, the people prior to this time of Jesus would have understood grace to mean uh, something a little bit different. For grace for them, prior to the New Testament canon, would have been understood typically as a descriptor given towards a woman. And what that descriptor meant was that the woman was, was lovely. She had virtue. There were things about her that you would see that she had grace that, get this, it would move you to, to an action because of the way that she, in particular, lived her life, but also how she looked. She, she carried the countenance of a virtue. And so what you have here is you have Stephen being full of the Spirit of God, full of power, and he is walking in a way that displays the unmerited favor of God on his life. So he is walking in such a way that people can see and people can almost quantify a subjective thing. They see that Stephen, having this power, is full of grace. And it is, in essence, it is lovely. It is good. And people see it and know it. And because of that, they start to listen to Stephen. But as we continue along in the text, I want you to notice that it, it continues to progress. They were doing these great wonders and, and all of these signs amongst the people. Stephen was a man who had committed himself 
to an act and to a lifestyle of service. One of the the things that we've got to do when we back out and we examine the forest of the text from the tree, when we look at what we saw from Stephen's life in the the previous week where, where he was just simply seeking to serve tables all the way to the end of his life, he was a man who was about service. The core of being a Christian is orientation around service. The core of being a Christian who is walking with God is that you have oriented your life in service to other people for the sake of the kingdom. It reminds me of a story that I read this past week of an Uber driver named Lauren who was called by a hospital staff to come and pick up this uh, veteran uh, senior adult who had no family to care for him and no way to get home. So Lauren was, was called on Uber. They sent the app. Lauren came, received the call. She takes this gentleman from the hospital. She was paid by the hospital staff to take this man home. She takes him home. He needs help walking up the steps. She goes into the apartment to make sure that this man is okay. And what she notices in the apartment is the apartment is a, is a wreck. Having no family to, to care for you, barely being able to care for yourself, um, your apartment or your home, it will fall into disarray. It gets cluttery. Stuff breaks. And over time, as a senior adult often, and most people, you just, you learn to live with it. Well, Lauren saw this and she saw that this man was in need. And so what she did was instead of just shutting the door and saying, well, best life to you, hope it all works out. She says, hold on a second, we need to help this guy. So she gets on social media. She gets on Facebook and she puts out a post and says, listen, I've met this gentleman. This is who he is. This is his situation. He has nobody to care for him. Can some of my Facebook community, uh, can, can you come help? And over a period of a couple of days, over 800 people responded to her Facebook message and went over there. They cleaned his apartment. They upgraded things. They gave him new things. They, they bought him groceries. They just sort of adopted him as, as being a part of his family. It's an example of someone who is loving their neighbor. No strings attached. No benefit from it other than just helping someone who is in need. Now, we are called to help our neighbor, but we are also called to help and to serve one another. Oftentimes, we make a distinction that I'm all about serving my neighbor, but I oftentimes can end up in a place where I become neglectful of serving the body in the local church. First John teaches us something really important. The world is going to know us by how, by how we care for one another. The world is watching how we take care of each other's needs. And the world wants to be a part of something where we are committed to each other in an authentic way, in a regular pattern of of getting into our circles and loving on each other, even in the midst of the circumstance that we find ourselves in. I read just this past week that Barna had produced something pre-COVID where they studied um, the people that come to church and how quickly they make decisions on whether or not to return. And out of the thousands of people that Barna surveyed, they discovered something that was pretty important and I think is is noticeable for us to hold on to today. They said when people come to church, they make a decision in the first seven minutes on whether or not they're going to return. 70% of people that come to church for the first time or come to visit a church, they decide almost immediately within the first seven minutes of their experience on whether or not they're going to return the following week. Now, there's a variety of of issues at play there. There's a variety of reasons that that come to play. 
But one of the prayers that we should have as a church is from the very moment that someone pulls into our parking lot and walks into our building, that they are greeted by and they sense the Spirit of God and that something is different on this campus and in this place that they want to be a part of it. Friendly smiles, even through our mask. Uh, somebody told me this morning, I, I, I told somebody that I hadn't seen them in a while and they'd been traveling. And I said, well, I'm really glad you got to go on that trip, but I'm really glad you got to come home. And she sort of looked at me and I could tell that she was smiling through her mask. She says, I'm actually smiling right now through my mask. I said, listen, I can see it in your eyes. I'm watching your eyes and I can tell in your eyes that you're happy right now. People can see our expressions even through our masks. And it's important that we convey a posture of gratitude and service. But a couple of things when it comes to service that I think Stephen understood. Number one is Stephen found a place of skill that, that he, his skills could be used. So when we're asking the question, where do I serve in the context of a church? Listen, it's a good thing if your skills can be matched up with the needs of the church. Sometimes that works out, not all the time, but sometimes. And so we go looking for a place of skill, but we also ask the question, what are you passionate about? What does it sort of get you going? If, it, if it's children, let, let's, let's go serve in children's ministry. If it's worship team, let's, let's find a, a way and an on-ramp to, to allow you to lead and to be a part of that. Or if it's administration or just serving people, we want you to be matched with your passion. It's a good thing. But here's the deal. Sometimes in churches, it's difficult to match skill and passion. And sometimes when we can't match skill and or passion, the response that we have is therefore then we just go and we sit. And we stay in our row rather than continuing to pursue our circle. And I would say to you that if you can match the skill and you can match the passion, great. But I think third and most importantly, when we ask the question, where do we serve? Like Stephen, we just simply go, where's the need? Where's the need? Where is it as a church that where, where are we struggling the most to find volunteers? I, I'll, I'll be that guy. What's the hardest position that I can go? What's the one that nobody else wants? Like sign me up to do that one. Where is the need? And we start looking for needs because the needs are often associated with the people. And my challenge to you this morning, just looking at Stephen's life, make room in your life to do things that make you uncomfortable in acts of service. Make space in your life to be uncomfortable in doing things. Stephen understood this, and, and Stephen began to speak radically to the religious leaders of the day. And I want you to notice the wisdom in which he speaks. Look with me at verse 9, where he says, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedom and of the Cyrenians and, and the Alexandrians and those from Sicilia and Asia rose up, and they disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, I want you to notice in verse 9 that little phrase, the, the synagogue of the freedom. Sort of a peculiar little phrase that he had put there to identify a group of individuals. Why would Luke add this detail for us? And, and what would be the significance of this? Well, you remember from last week, we, we said earlier this morning and last week, that what group was it that rose up and began to complain to the apostles? It was the Hellenist. It was the Greek-speaking Jew, not the Hebrew, but it was the Greek-speaking Jew who had been living in exile. Well, scholars have, have taught us that the synagogue of the freedom was, guess what? These were Greek-speaking individuals. 
So I want you to notice something in the midst of this. Stephen's ministry evolved around meeting the needs of one particular group, specifically the Greek-speaking Jewish individuals whom he waited on and he served and he met the needs of these individuals. And he does that faithfully. But over a period of time, what begins to happen? This same group of individuals begins to rise up and they still begin to complain and become incensed at what Stephen is teaching. So it's the same group that are doing some of the same things for different reasons in this moment. Now, some of us have the tendency to go, all right, well, in this moment, or the pastor would, would sort of tee it up and, and just sort of hit a grand slam, just sort of dotting the eye and, and, and saying, listen, um, don't be a complainer. Let's shut down the complainers. Like there's always people that complain. But here's the thing that struck me this week as I sort of, that was being hammered over and over and over again into my heart. It's not so much what complainers do we have out there, but how many complainers do we have right here? And what I mean by that is not the person to your right and not the person to your left, but the person that's standing in the circle that you're drawing around the seat that you're currently sitting in. And for me, it was asking this question, Lord, am I, am I like these Hellenists at times? Overly critical, too harsh, too judgmental, quick to anger, very fast to get frustrated and, and irritated with, with people or situations or, or circumstances. And so the question is meant to be asked on the inside, am I belonging to or acting in a way that is similar to this group who belong to the synagogue of the freed man? But he begins to speak with wisdom and full of the Spirit. But then notice how they begin to respond and the determination of Stephen in verse 11 where he says, Then this group secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against his holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will come and destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel." And what's essentially happened is this group of religious leaders have put plants inside the midst of the congregation to slander Stephen falsely to say he's saying things that he's not saying. Because they felt threatened in a way that their institution, if you will, their system, if you will, was sort of under attack by the things that Stephen was teaching. That there was freedom now in Christ, that the law uh, was helpful, but ultimately the law is just pointing us to someone who ultimately fulfilled the law in Jesus. Ultimately, all the things that you're holding on to in your history and in your past, you have made, uh, not, not, not cherished it and valued it, but you have made it into an idol. And you're moving forward with, with just your rich traditions and, and you're being controlled by traditionalism. And, and it's not meant that our traditions become traditionalism. And we're meant to walk in the freedom that God gives, the freedom in Jesus. And so what Stephen does then to these religious leaders is he responds and he gives the longest sermon in the entirety of the book of Acts. Stephen holds that honor. Now, it's 50-something verses, and I don't have time to go through it this morning and wouldn't dare try to do that. Because really, from a preaching standpoint, if I can say this about Stephen, I think he would agree with me. It's a really boring sermon. It's a lot of information. 
He starts all the way from the beginning and he talks about God's grander narrative and begins to address things. But, but I mean, man, he's, he's rolling stuff out. And so what I've done that I think is most helpful for us this morning is sort of divided into three sections. He addresses the land that God's people were given through Abraham. He speaks about the law and addresses Moses and accuses them, not himself, of being the one that misunderstood, but rather they misunderstood what the point of Moses was and the law and then understanding the temple and that the veil had been torn and now we have access to the Father specifically through Jesus. Now I want to ask you this question and I want you to understand the timing of all of this. Stephen is just teaching and preaching the gospel. He's sharing the good news and he's brought in by the religious leaders and immediately he begins to speak with great clarity about the things of God. And so here's the challenge for us this morning. Stephen understood the word of God so well that in this moment, guess what? He, he had studied it for so long and it was so a part of who he was, um, he didn't have time to consult uh, grammatical commentaries. He didn't go and pull the, the latest theological commentary on the text or he didn't go and, and look at homiletical outlines by pastors and teachers. He didn't study words. He didn't break down the syntax. He just simply, full of the Spirit, began to talk. Why and how? Because Stephen was a man who walked with God and understood the authority of Scripture. For Stephen, he understood this simple truth that is often missed in many of us, that nothing is more important than the Word of God. Nothing is more important for our aim and, and for our direction. And what we see happen in Stephen's life is the Spirit of God in chapter 7 begins to bring to mind the things that he had committed to his memory that he wanted to be changed by. And so as he's talking, the Spirit of God is taken over in his life. Listen, the Holy Spirit of God cannot fire arrows you do not have in your quiver. You've got to study and to, to show thyself approved. It's not this notion that we, we lay the Bible open and, and there's some sort of, of Hinduism or, or Buddhism here and we're, we're praying that, that the knowledge be absorbed. I was in college one time studying late night at an IHOP, getting ready for an exam and uh, it was about midnight and my waitress came up to me, my friends, we were studying. We really weren't studying. We were just drinking coffee and eating pancakes. And she said, what do you study? So I'm studying for a finance test. Uh, I don't know anything about this. It was corporate finance at the time. So this is terrible. She said, well, listen, what you got to do is this. You got to take that big old book that you've got and you got to put it over your head and you just got to pray that God is just going to let that information go into your head and you're going to absorb it. I was like, you're being for real. She's like, I believe it. I believe it. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. I, I, I wasn't very wise at that time, but I was getting, trying to get wiser. I knew right then that if I were to trust her and to do that, I was going to fail my exam. And praise be to God that I did not do that. But oftentimes we think that that's how this works in the context of studying God's word. That I'm just going to pray and, and mystically it's, I'm just going to know and understand when the way that God is speaking to his people is through this. So if we want to know Christ and we want to know him crucified and to share in his experiences, we have to know this just like Stephen did. And we have to yield our lives to its authority and its place, rightful place in our life. But look with me if we continue in verse 54 of chapter 7. He preaches his sermon and he brings it to conclusion. And he says this in 54, now when they heard these things, it says they were enraged and they began to ground their teeth at him. 
grind their teeth in anger. Some of you do this in your sleep, right? You grind, you're angry about something in your dreams and you don't know, but you're grinding your teeth. When we're mad at someone, we, we clench our jaws. You ever had somebody so mad at you that you could see their jawline clenched and you could see them straining? I've had that happen a couple of times in just pastoral counseling. They were mad at me for, for whatever or the circumstance or the situation. And they were talking to me like this. And I was watching the muscles in their, in their jaw just going, they are really mad, like really mad. And so these people were, were incensed at what Stephen was, was teaching and what he was proclaiming. But he, 55, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw them. He saw the glory of God. And he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now here's the question for us, before us this morning. We know from elsewhere that when Jesus ascended to the right hand, he entered into a posture of not standing, but what was he doing? He sits. And why does he sit? To signify that his work is finished. He's done. It's complete. He has defeated sin, death, and evil, so he no longer needs to stand because he's not working anymore. He is sitting. There he sits. But yet in this moment, Stephen is able to see into heaven, and he sees the glory of God, and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Why? Because I think it looks a little bit like this when we go to graduation ceremonies, when my uh, my kids graduated from kindergarten. You know that there's a kindergarten graduation for kindergarten. I didn't have that growing up. But you go to kindergarten graduation, and it's awesome. I think it's infinitely probably better than high school graduation, okay? And these little kindergartners, they, they come in, and they parade them in at the school that my kids were at. And when they come in, you know what we do when those kindergartners come in? What do you think we do? Stand up. Show some respect, son, Right? These little guys walking down the aisle, right, in their, in their hoods and their gowns and all that kind of stuff, like looking dapper, they're ready to go. You respect them. When you go to a funeral and the family comes in, what happens? What do you do? Stand up. When the family exits, did they leave first? If there's not a, a visitation down front, what is it that you do? You stand up. Why? When you go to a wedding and, and the bride, it's time for the bride to come in. Do you, do you dare sit down unless the preacher forgets to tell you to stand up, right? You stand up. Why do we do those things? We do them so that we can honor the person who has come into the room. We do that to, to sort of bring a little bit of dignity to the, to the position and the place and to the person that we're trying to show respect to. Now think about this for just a moment. Jesus, the Son of God, died for the sins of the world, stands to welcome Stephen into the presence of God. He is standing as a, as a place of honor. He says in verse 56, Behold, I see the heavens open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed him together. Then they cast him out of the city and they began to stone Stephen. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Sort of a tender way for Luke to use the description, fall asleep, for someone who died in an extremely barbaric way. You think about this for a moment in the scene that existed there. You have a man, he wasn't perfect like Jesus, but he had done no wrong. 
He may have preached a, a boring sermon, but it wasn't worth being stoned to death. He was trying to be faithful, just an ordinary guy living in faithfulness and even in obedience, ultimately he paid the price of death. What I think is intended by that phrase, fall asleep, I think it's a tender way for the Lord to remind us that when we breathe our last breath in this life, that in the very next moment we wake up in the presence of the Lord, we fall asleep in this life to wake up into the next. And he's reminding us that no matter how horrific and barbaric the death, that when God brings us home in whatever form that is, that it's a good thing. And there's almost a gentleness there in the moment of that. But what I find highly ironic in this moment is the audience that now is looking upon Stephen as he's being killed. You notice that it says Saul was present. We ultimately know, if we know about Saul, who's later converted to Paul, we'll read about his conversion in the weeks ahead. But I find it highly interesting that in this moment, as these rocks are being hurled at Stephen's body, and the blood begins to leave his head, and he begins to lose consciousness, and he begins to get ready to breathe his last breath, to fall asleep in this life, to open up into the next that that blood begins to fall to the ground. And in a sense, it's almost the, the seed that what ultimately leads to Saul's conversion to Paul. Yes, Saul was confronted by the Lord, but Saul witnessed this moment. It says that he was uh, not just persecuting Christians, but he was practicing and exhibiting a sense of barbarity. He was cruelly putting these men and these women to death. It says in verse 3 of chapter 8, Paul was ravaging the church, entering the house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. This idea of ravaging, it's almost a sadistic term that exists like a, like a boar uh, tearing apart an individual limb by limb. This is what Paul was doing. He was brutal. What do we do about Stephen's death, though? I, I think that one of the overarching things of Stephen's life and the theme here is that it's this idea that God does his greatest work through just ordinary, plain old people who are just trying to be very faithful with what God has called them to do. Listen, this is who God uses for his kingdom. Don't miss this. He uses ordinary people. Many of you know that... Uh, in the past year, one of my, I have lots of hobbies. In fact, when seminary students ask me for advice, uh, oftentimes the thing I tell them uh, first and foremost is get a hobby. Like go find something to do other than read theology books, all right? You'll be much more relatable and you'll enjoy yourself and your life a whole lot more. And one of the, th I do a lot of things, but one of the things I recently got into this past year was beekeeping. Now I promised my wife uh, months ago, uh, we were talking about this. She's like, listen, you're gonna be one of those pastors that it's like he gets into beekeeping and all he does is talk about beekeeping. It's like the, like the pastor that goes to Israel for the first time. He comes home, all he's talking about is Israel. Or the pastor who has a kid for the first time, all he does, all of his illustrations, are always about his kid, right? So I've held off for three or four months and I'm just gonna let you have it today, okay? All right, it's honey harvesting time in the Erickson household, so bees are on my mind, things are happening in my home and so we're, we're getting after it. I wanna show you this picture of a beehive uh, or not a natural beehive, but typically if you're gonna raise bees, it's gonna be raised in a box similar to this and you've all seen these boxes that are sort of stacked up on each other. Well, what you may not know is that within a beehive, a healthy beehive will con contain or consist of somewhere between 60 and 70,000 bees. 
a healthy one. If you go catch a live one uh, that is swarmed, you're probably running a number of about 10 to 20,000. Now, a good queen is going to lay, some of these good queens are going to lay close to 2,000 eggs a day to produce bees. So if you think about this from the context of 60,000 bees in a healthy hive, and guess what about these bees? Every single bee has a purpose, and every single bee does something in an act of service to the queen. There are drone bees that they're just there to, to, to be lovely and, and tender towards the queen and to take care of her needs, right? But as these uh, worker bees sort of evolve, what happens is they begin to sort of graduate. And so you emerge and, and here you are, this young bee, and your primary responsibility is in the beginning before we just send you off to fly and go collect things. Listen, you're going to clean up the, the bee excrement. You're going to clean up the bottom of, of the hive. That's your job is to make sure that this is clean. But after a while, you show some faithfulness, we will provide promote you within our bee hierarchy and you can be one of the bees that that gathers out of here and flies off a mile or two to go find water or to go find food and to bring it back over a mile they'll come back and they'll bring this stuff in but here's what's so fascinating about bees bees in in a way they mirror the gospel better than the church often mirrors the gospel Because every single bee serves a purpose. If you don't within the bee colony, the consequence of that is death. Like church discipline to the nth degree, you're gone. You're not a part of this anymore. You're out of here. They will murder you and kill you. Like you're you're finished. But every single bee plays a role. And the role is to serve the queen. Now we don't have any queen bees here at Travis, with the exception of Matt Getty a little bit. (laughs) And while we don't have queen bees, let me tell you something. We do have a risen Savior that is worthy of every act of service that we render to him. And there is no act of service that is too small to do on his behalf. I think the best place to serve for God's people is in the midst of a circle, serving and caring for your circle. I realize that's difficult now. It looks different. It's changed a little bit, but it's still the best place. I think God wants to call a bunch of extraordinarily faithful and ordinary people in this church to do some extraordinary things. My challenge to you today is just simply this. If you don't know Christ and you are the church that I'm speaking to this morning, where are you rendering your service for the kingdom of God? Pray with me. Father, we thank you in Christ's name that you've saved us. You've given us forgiveness of sins. Lord, we want to be and mirror Stephen's life, to live a life of gratitude and thankfulness for who you are, but to render our lives and commit it to service and serving our neighbors, those who are lost and far from you, but also serving the church. It is a privilege when we get the chance to serve you in your kingdom. And so I pray today, Lord, that you would put on the hearts of our people, whether here or at home, ways that they can uniquely serve one another. Father, I pray for those that are here today that do not know you and have a relationship like Stephen did with you. 
I pray that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would confess with their mouth that, that you are Lord and believe in your, their heart that you raised Christ from the dead. I pray, God, that they would receive you through your spirit and be welcomed into the kingdom. They would just simply pray, not knowing Jesus, God, forgive me of my sins. Save me from my sins. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Help us respond, Lord, during this time. We love you and we continue to worship you in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. I'm gonna invite you to stand as we sing this song to close out our service in response to the word and who God is and what he's done and all the good things that he's gonna continue to do. Noah.